Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show is a mini-sode that takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question. What her choice is for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then as Hemingway writes, go on from there. We can think of no one better to ask than Pam Houston, herself well-known for her own power and beauty as a stylist. Pam Houston is the acclaimed author of the memoir Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country, two novels, Contents May Have Shifted and Sighthound, two collections of short stories, Cowboys Are My Weakness and Waltzing the Cat, and a collection of essays, A Little More About Me. We are thrilled to welcome Pam Houston to One True Podcast. Welcome, Pam. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So, Pam, what is your one true sentence and why? My one true sentence is from a letter to F. Scott Fitzgerald. Hemingway said, but when you get the damned hurt, use it. Don't cheat with it. Okay, that's wonderful. What does that tell you about Hemingway, that sentiment? Well, I mean, it's it's something that resonates with me as a writing teacher. You know, I've written a lot of books, but my real calling is as a writing teacher, I believe, uh, especially the older I get, the more important it is to me to help get books out into the world by these younger writers. Uh, and and so I can't think of the amount of times, you know, I've said, I have to see the blood on the wall <laughs> or something like that. Um, I think, you know, of course, one of my major roles as a teacher is to hold a space where a young writer can express the hurt and stay with it and write deeply and precisely enough into it that the reader is moved by it, is changed by it, can have the experience of it. And I think that's what he means here. He, he, you know, Hemingway was famous for talking about all the ways he was hurt in his life. I guess most writers are. Um, and, you know, I think what he's saying here quite clearly is, um, is you can't gloss over it. You can't rush through it. You know, you can't protect. One thing I'm always saying in class is stop protecting me from the bad thing that happened. You know, I want to be in it. I want to be in that moment of the worst pain, you know, not with a whole bunch of languagey abstractions, um, but with the actual physical details of the scene, even if it's emotional pain. I want to be deeply in the scene and I want to stay in it long enough to feel the hurt. So I think one of the stereotypes of young writers, of perhaps of the kind that would be in your class, would be people who wallow in their own pain and would love to would love nothing more than to exorcise their their personal demons. Are you are they avoiding that or are they just avoiding writing truly about it in the way that Hemingway instructed? Well, I think one of the things 
I learned from Hemingway as a young writer, and you know, I learned many things from many different writers, but The Sun Also Rises, for instance, was a book that was very important to me as a young writer. And I think the main lesson from him was to sink the hurt and the pain down into the metaphor. The problem that you're talking about with young writers, not all young writers by any means, but writers I've worked with is that they think filling up the pages with words like hurt, shame, fear, agony, angst, you know, is going to get the job done, is going to empty them of their, you know, soul full of emotions (laughs) and express it to the reader. But it absolutely isn't. You know, we need to see the dead deer on the side of the road, the dead pregnant doe with the warm baby still alive in its belly. You know, that's how, you know, you, you, you must or, or, or your terrible grandfather who used to come into your bedroom at night. We need to see the the salt shakers that he was turning on a lathe in the basement, you know, for hours while you were trying to get your homework done. Like whatever it is, you need to sink that pain into the physical world. And Hemingway was good at that. And he taught me that um, in a certain way. One of the writers who taught me that. And, and that all those abstractions you know, if you fill up the pages with abstractions about your pain, emotion words for your pain, you know, the reader may as well go outside and have a cigarette because you're doing all the work for them and you're not inviting them to participate in the scene that, um, you know, that 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 evokes those feelings. You know, um, it, it's it, it, you, you have to um, ground the reader physically. Um, so that the reader can then um, bring their own emotions, you know, like you bring all your emotions and you put it in the physical and then the reader apprehends it in the physical and translates it back into their emotions. It's like a cable message being scrambled through the wires and it comes out clear on the other side. So the well-chosen detail is an aspect of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, for me as a writer, I start there. I don't start with my emotion. Uh, my first job as a writer is to notice what I see in the world. I would not be surprised if this were true for Hemingway, but, but for me, you know, I write, I, my first job as a writer is to pay strict attention when I'm out in the world and I collect things I call glimmers, not because they're pretty, just because they vibrate. And, and those things, whatever they are, the grandfather's salt shakers, the dead deer on the side of the road, the color of the surface of a river late in the day when it turns into mercury, a woman backhanding her kid in the Walmart checkout line, you know, you name it, it can be anything. Um, I come home and I write those down and they become my raw materials as if I'm making, you know, really good soup out of organic vegetables. They become my raw materials. So I don't ever start with, oh, I have an emotion I want to express. I start with, I have all these things from the world that lit up for me, that vibrated and said they were available to express some feeling I have inside. But I don't even worry about linking the feeling with the thing. I just look at my glimmers. I sort through my computer and I say, okay, which of these glimmers feel hot? You know, which of these glimmers feel like they want to come out and play? Which of these glimmers feel feel like pushing on a bruise? You know, then which ones feel like they want to interact with each other? 
and the story kind of emerges out of the the collaging of those glimmers. So so for me, I really start in the physical world, not in the emotional world. Did you always write like that, or was that what? Or did you have to sort of find your own method? No, I always wrote like that. And and I didn't really know how to describe it. You know, when I became a teacher, I had to learn to articulate what I was doing. But it is like I've always been so in love with the physical world and the natural world, of course. Um, and I've always felt like, I mean, even when I didn't think very much about what I was doing, I always felt like my job was to bear witness to those you know, those intense moments out in the natural world or in the physical world, whether they were beautiful or tragic or, and, and, and I, I, you know, I feel myself as a record keeper. So I never, you know, never, even early on, did I think, oh, I want to write a story about, that's not a sentence that ever occurs to me. It's like, I have these glimmering objects I picked up and brought to the page. And now how are they going to work together to turn into a story? And, um, and, 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 you know, it's not like the stories then become fantastical, you know, like I'm, I'm a a very autobiographical writer. I do manage to use the glimmers to tell stories about things that have happened to me, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, but I just go about it through the back door, I think. Yeah. I was going to ask, where do you find that line? of things that you're noticing, when do they suggest fiction to you or memoir, essay? How do you uh, allocate them? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't separate them, you know, literally in my computer. Like it's all just a big, massive pile of literally thousands of glimmers. Um, But when I'm choosing them, Uh, you know, often I don't know whether a thing is going to be called an essay or a story when I begin it. Often I just kind of bring the glimmers together and the story kind of emerges slowly, you know, and sometimes some, I I don't mean to make it sound over mysterious. Like if I have 10 glimmers that happened on a trip to Mongolia, I know I'm writing an essay about Mongolia, but sometimes I really don't know. You know, sometimes I'm like, oh, fruit bats and orcas and this ridiculous conversation I had in the Santa Fe Whole Foods parking lot. Let's see what that makes, you know? So, so sometimes I'm flying more blind than others, but, but often it's very late that I decide whether it's going to be called fiction or whether it's going to be called an essay. And often that decision comes from how many liberties I've taken with the truth. You know, like I let the story direct me. And if the story directs me far away from what actually happened, even if it started with something that actually happened, then, you know, then we're in the realm of fiction. And sometimes that's, of course, can be fun. Like I, I was writing a story a couple months ago and I couldn't solve a problem and I couldn't solve a problem. And I thought it was an essay because it was about a river trip that I was on recently on the Green River. And then I suddenly realized the character had a sister and that that made the story make sense. And I don't have a sister. So I was like, OK, I guess this isn't an essay anymore. <laughs> it's a story, you know, and then that really freed it up. But sometimes the opposite thing happens. And sometimes like Deep Creek is my first book that couldn't have been fiction. Like all my other books, every one of them could have been either, 
could have been called either. And I would have been okay with it. <laughs> you know, uh, we called most of them fiction because, because I, 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 um, strayed <laughs> from the truth often enough that we decided they should be called fiction, even though they're all more or less autobiographical. But Deep Creek depended on being nonfiction. I see. It had to be. And I learned so much. I mean, I've written a ton of nonfiction in my life, but never a book length nonfiction. And I learned so much about what that means to have to stay with what really happened and to wait for the meaning to emerge from it instead of like blowing up a car if you're bored, which, or, you know, inventing a sister, which you can do in fiction. And so, so Deep Creek absolutely had to be nonfiction, but I've never felt that way about any of my books before. So that was a learning experience too. Stay tuned for this word. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Von Cannon dropping in to remind all of you that the Hemingway Society is the official sponsor of our show. Keep current on all things Hemingway by heading over to their site at HemingwaySociety.org. And while you're there, please check out the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Hemingway Society. Mark and I read it cover to cover every time a new issue arrives. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org slash journals. Finally, One True Book Club has begun. Mark and I are reading our way through many of the books Hemingway read, and we're starting with those formative Paris years and with Hemingway's lending library cards at Shakespeare and Company. Consider becoming a member of the book club by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. Your career is actually much like Hemingway's in, in terms of Hemingway's books are the line is often blurred between fiction and nonfiction. And we're using the words fiction and nonfiction in a segment about one true sentence. And this, the quote you picked was about uh, don't cheat with it. So fiction and nonfiction is something altogether different than truth and cheating, isn't it? So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you can find when does fiction become truer than nonfiction in a in a paradoxical way. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's something that I grew up with from my teachers, you know, and, and from the readers that I read when I was a young writer, that fiction, that if you want to know about a genocide, say, read the fiction that was published about it rather than the nonfiction, because you're much more likely to get the truth and you're much more likely to get a more human take on what really happened. Um, but, but, you know, I, I've been thinking of something just because, you know, the great Barry Lopez died a couple of days ago and, and, um, and he, he says an amazing thing about this division between fiction and nonfiction. He's talking to the indigenous people he got to, to, to be with, but he said, um, he was talking to an indigenous elder about our distinction we make between fiction and nonfiction. And the elder said, you know, that wouldn't really work for us. And he said, why? And the elder said, well, you know, we think about a story as an authentic story or an inauthentic story. And an authentic story is about us. It's about all the people and an inauthentic story is only about the writer himself. Wow. That and, is wonderful. Isn't it? Yeah. 
And so that, I mean, I have spent my entire life, Mark, thinking about the distinction between fiction and nonfiction, worrying it, challenging it, <laughs> arguing with it publicly. I wrote an essay called Corn Maze that's all about my belief that nonfiction can't exist. You know, and then we got Trump. And so I walked back that idea a little bit. But um, it's it's been at the center of my project is worrying that line. But that thing that the elder told Barry Lopez <laughs> feels to me like a thing that I'm really trying to incorporate now. Like even if I'm writing about my own pain, back to the Hemingway quote, when I'm writing about the hurt, how can I make that about all the people right. and not just my hurt? You know, which also goes back to the very first thing you asked me, like what about these young writers who want to talk about their angst? You know, yeah. how can I help them? make it be about everybody's hurt and not just theirs. How is Jake Barnes symbolic of all World War I, all the lost generation, not just a personal individual injury? Yeah. Uh, Emerson, was, Emerson said that uh, Dante, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy is about, a, is about one person's midlife crisis. And we're still reading it, you know, centuries later because he managed to find a universal application to it. So your point is, yeah, your point is absolutely, is absolutely wonderful. Um, what are some, who are some other writers who you, you mentioned, you said Hemingway was, was one of the people as you were starting to write where you, you sort of fixed on him about this sort of, these sort of details that provide emotion. Who else did you read, uh, as you were developing your own voice? You know, I was a big fan of the modernists. You know, I, I had this great teacher, Dominic Consolo, who taught modernism at Denison University when I was an undergraduate. And so really, you know, Hemingway, Faulkner, Lawrence. I mean, sometimes I think Cowboys Are My Weakness is kind of my own rewrite of Women in Love. You know, like I, uh, Virginia Woolf, you know, certainly James Joyce, Portrait of an Artist. That got into me, you know, not that I'm experimental in any of those same ways, but those writers I think of as like that class, you know, how one class with one teacher can change your whole world. And that really did. Um, when I was starting to publish, um, Lori Moore was super important to me. She's, you know, my immediate elder, not by much. Um, uh, Richard Ford's Rock Springs was a super important book to me back to the concrete physical detail and sinking the emotion into um, into the the landscape. Um, Gretel Ehrlich's The Solace of Open Spaces was a really important book to me. Um, and, you know, I'm learning all the time. You know, literature is changing so much right now as so many of these underrepresented voices are rising, you know. Um, I was, you know, had the grace of being uh, Tommy Orange's teacher, you know, before he wrote There, There. And that book has so much to teach us about how we make stories and how we make the stories about everyone, speaking of that. Sure. And I do teach at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And it's just it's just true that that Native American cultures um, are good at are better at speaking for everyone and for the community and thinking about the community and thinking about our relation to the landscape. Like it's so ingrained in how they grow up and how they're taught compared to us that, that you just see that a lot more. Um, I just read uh, Carolyn Forche's memoir, What You Have Heard Is True. 
and it immediately jumped to my top five books of all time. <laughs> I learned so much about that because that is a memoir, again, to your point, that's a memoir, They call, she calls it a memoir of, of witness and resistance. And so she's the main character in it, but it's really about the war in El Salvador, even though at the same time, it's about her education as a kind of clueless young American poet, her accidental education, you know? And so are these the materials that you use as a, as a teacher, mm -hmm. more, more contemporary works than let's say going back to the modernists? I do. I do. I, I, I have always taught new books. Um, it, it keeps me reading new right. books, you know, um, I like not to teach a book more than two or three times. I mean, certain books I will. Carolyn's book I will now. Um, I teach jazz, Toni Morrison's jazz to almost everyone. I teach uh, Leslie Silko's Ceremony. Like there are certain books that I teach and teach and teach and teach. For a long time, it was Rock Springs and I haven't taught that lately. But, um, but, but on the whole, I teach brand new books. Also, I have so many students who, I mean, I've been a teacher so long and in so many settings that now I walk into a bookstore and I have like 25 books on the shelves written by students of mine. So I like to teach my own students books, you know, uh, to get them out in the world. I mean, some of them obviously like they're there, didn't need my help, <laughs> but, but some of them do. And so, you know, I, I like to teach new books. Would you mind rereading the quote? that started us down this path? I would not. Uh, it is. But when you get the damned hurt, use it. Don't cheat with it. Pam Houston, what a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you, Mark. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at one true pod. That's the number one true pod. Or email us at one true pod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,